This is Joy Reid, and you're listening to Five Questions with Dan Shaw Bell. You're listening to the Five Questions podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Shaw Bell. In fewer than 10 minutes, my goal is to extract the best advice from the world's smartest and most interesting people by asking them just five questions. My guest today is MSNBC host Joy Ann Reed. Joy is the host of MSNBC's The Readout and author of the new book, Medgar and Murley. We talk about the book and her career during this episode. Joy Ann, welcome to Five Questions. Thank you. It's great to be here. So happy to have you on here. So I'd love to start off, like, what are some of the key moments and experiences that have shaped your career in journalism and broadcasting? You know, what's interesting, I would say the key experience that wound up shaping my career was actually quitting broadcasting. (laughs) I was actually leaving because I used to work for a local news outlet, first of all, for a Fox affiliate in Miami, and then I worked for an NBC affiliate. And I actually quit in 2004 because I was very against the Iraq war and also the way that the media was covering it. And that actually wound up shaping my career because I wound up working for this organization called America Coming Together. It was a big pack. George Soros put $260 million into it, trying to defeat George W. Bush as like an outside group. Through that, I gained so many incredible contacts, including the contacts that put me on the Obama campaign toward the end of that campaign in 2008. But it also, in between those two campaigns, put me on the radio after George W. Bush won <laughs> and the, the the mission was not complete. Um, I had to figure out what else to do because I wasn't going back to, at that point, I didn't think I was ever going back to TV. So I wound up working in radio, first as a producer and then as a producer co-host for my mentor, James T. in Miami. I think radio is the best training for a broadcaster. It is just this incredible medium where you have this interactivity with the audience where I was doing the research for the segments. I did a news segment, you know, where I would have my little moment to get on and do the news and I would interact with James T as a host and ultimately became his co-host. And I think that experience shaped me as a broadcaster more than anything else. And if you think about it, like some of the best cable news broadcasters were radio hosts. It just is the best training for what I do now. And I've talked to a lot of people on TV and some of them at least have experience in radio. So that definitely holds true. Speaking of journalism, like what role do you believe journalism plays in advancing conversations around social justice specifically? And how can the media contribute to positive change? Wow. I mean, the media right now, I don't think is is doing a great job of contributing to positive change because I think the media writ large is resistant to becoming a voice in terms of social justice. The media desperately wants to be neutral, wants to be out of the fray and just say, this is what happened. And that's what happened. And on the one hand, on the other hand, and on the one hand, on the other hand is actually averse to social justice. There are no two sides to civil rights. And so the media, I think for a long time has put itself, tried to put itself down the center. It's the moments when it can't, when the media is sort of forced to take a side, when it actually does contribute to change, right? It's that moment when the media, like, you know, in the 1960s, after 40 years of Black journalists demanding that, you know, lynching not be covered as this neutral event. Ida B. Wells, you know, was the main leading voice in saying that the way that lynching was covered in the early 20th century, it was taking a side by not taking a side, by just sort of clinically reporting these lynchings. And so you had Black journalists like led by her demanding that that change. And by the 1960s, it kind of did. Once television was going down into the South and looking at this situation where it was not on the one hand, on the other hand, there was a victim, there was a villain. And as the media started to cover it that way, television became a key component of changing this country and moving it forward on civil rights because activists, they understood the power of this medium and they used the power of television, of making these white sheriffs beat them on TV, of making them fire hose children, but on TV, 
rather than anonymously and outside of the view of cameras or only in the eye of still cameras and getting segregationists to get on TV and say, no, nah, I think the blacks are happy with segregation because they also thought they could use television. And it literally changed the course of this country because people had to witness the evil, right? And when they did, people recoiled from it. And so the media can sometimes accidentally produce social change. Very interesting from a historical standpoint, kind of leading up to where we are today, especially in today's world of social media, it feels like everyone's in their own echo chamber with all these algorithms and everything. A lot of that news still starts with TV. So it is kind of a really important reminder that TV is still holds this like really powerful force in society and kind of leads to the next question about your new book. Congratulations. What inspired you to write a book about Medgar and Murley Evers? And why did you decide to publish it in an election year? I know. Great timing. Like I had so much time last year because I was working on this book actually for two years. What prompted me to do it was meeting Merle Evers. I had, you know, admired her from a distance for a really long time. I finally got to meet her in 2018. She, we were out in LA shooting my previous show, my weekend show, AM Joy, and she was a guest on the show. I had interviewed her before, but only remote. This is the first time I'd actually met her in person. And I just was so taken with her. She's such a regal figure. She's such a brilliant woman. It just really prompted me to realize how little even I knew. And I'm a history nerd. I knew who Medgar Evers was. I knew he had died in 63, but I didn't really know, know who he was. And so it kind of set me off on this journey to really dig in more about both of them and their history as civil rights leaders. The other piece of it was that the way she, when we just had our casual conversation off air, talked about Medgar. I said to her, Miss Murley, he's been gone for 60 years and you sound like a newlywed. She loves this man. I have never really known anyone. I love my husband, but I've never seen anybody love anybody the way this woman loves that man to this day. And she had a second husband, but even he understood that Medgar Evers was the love of her life. And the way she spoke about him, I said to her, Miss Murley, this is a book. You should write this. And she said, I wrote two books. I'm not writing any more, <laughs> any more books. You know, I said to my editor at HarperCollins, I think this is the book because no one has really written about civil rights leaders in a way that takes their life out of the compartment of being civil rights leaders. These men were, first of all, very young, and they were fighting for their lives in incredible peril. And they had wives who, in the case of people like Murley Evers and Betty Shabazz and Coretta Scott King, were literally 1950s housewives. And they don't get enough credit. To me, I was like, if you're going to write about civil rights leaders and the greats, you have to write about their whole lives. And, and that includes the, the loves of their lives. For the book, one of the exercises you did, obviously, as part of your research, was you interviewed uh, Murley and her family. Through those interviews, what most surprised you or furthered your understanding of that time period? I think the thing that most surprised me was how reluctant an activist wife Merle was and how resistant she was to it. You just sort of get the sense, you know, when you think about civil rights, you think about it as everyone was all in, like everyone was down for civil rights. The truth is very few people were down for it, even in the Black community, because people were scared. It's not because people didn't want to be free. It's that people were terrified. Medgar was encountering these terrified people in the Delta who were still just above slavery. People, I think, in a, this contemporary world don't realize, up until like the 1960s, it was perfectly legal to kill Black people in America. Black people knew that. And so when Medgar Evers, she gets with this guy who she knows is an activist, he's an you know, he's like a Pan-Africanist, you know? She was terrified to be with him. 
But at the same time, she loved him so much that she was willing to put up with the terror. So I think that was the thing that most surprised me was the humanity of just how resistant she was. But the fact that she was such a strong and brilliant and incredible heroic human that she did it anyway. And what's your best piece of career advice? To not be afraid of adventure. And when I say that, don't be afraid to just leave what you're doing and do what you love. I have quit more jobs than I will say on this podcast. If you're dissatisfied with the thing that you're doing for money, think about doing something for love. And that is not easy to do, actually. It is really not easy to do. And it's it's a risk that you have to take. I did not come from money. I did not have a, you know, a mom with money. I was an orphan by the time I was seven, 17. I didn't have no parents. I was unwilling to do something just for money that made me unhappy. When I quit my job at WTVJ, the NBC affiliate, I thought that was the end of my career in news, but I did something I was passionate about instead. I got into politics and elections, passionately tried to get George W. Bush out of that White House. And I failed to do that. It forced me, because you know my mom was this adventurous person. I mean, she left Guyana, went to England in her 30s and came to the United States, went to Iowa, went to New York. She was like an adventurous person. We were the road trip family. So I kind of developed that sense of adventure, but that sense of adventure will actually give you great joy because when you're doing something that you actually love to do, you're not really working, right? You're just living and the thing you're doing, somebody is compensating you for it in some way. And I think this young generation really gets that on an organic level that we Gen Xers don't. You need to actually have joy, not just after work, but in work. And so if you can try to find something that makes you happy, that makes you joyful, that is the greatest employment. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, Joy. To follow her journey, you can read Medgar and Murley and find her on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where she shares her travels, appearances, and historical moments. To watch the full extended video version of this episode, go to youtube.com slash Dan Shawbell. And please remember to rate and review the Five Questions podcast on iTunes. Mm-hmm.